Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening, um, I even hate to read his biography because it doesn't really tell what I think of him. It's good. Don't worry, Dr. Marshner. Our speaker this evening received, received his master's degree from the Dallas University. University, university and his licentiate and doctorate in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute. In 1977, he became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and has served ever since as a professor of theology. A well-known author and a Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism, uh, he's a regular presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture. He's a dear friend of mine. In fact, he chanted the epistle at my wedding. So uh, truly a dear friend of mine. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. William Marshner. Let's see if that mic works. All right. Can you tell? Does it sound okay? Very good. I hope your endorsement means that I was able to carry a tune. <laughs> In reversal of my usual order of treatment, I am not going to begin tonight with the sources of Islamic doctrine and the nature of that doctrine and so on. I'm going to begin rather with history, with what Muhammad actually did which provides evidence in answer of the question with which I entitle this talk. Ma if al Muhammad. What would Muhammad do? M M yeah. W M M D. <laughs> what would Muhammad do? W W yeah, right. And um, I'm going to inch towards an answer to that question. Eh, you will see. I want to start with an outline of the guy's life. He was born in Mecca in southern Arabia, a city belonging to the Quraysh tribe. Begins with a Q. When you see an Arabic word that begins with a Q, don't worry about it. Just try to say K at the back of your throat. Quraysh. <coughs> yeah. Um, in 570 AD. When he was 25 years old, he married a Meccan businesswoman named Khadijah. Khadijah ran uh, caravans and so on. And Muhammad helped her out with the caravan business. He was 40 years old when he received his first, quote, revelation, unquote, 
from a figure whom he identified as the archangel Gabriel. In Arabic, Gabriel is called Jibril. So when you see inscribed on an Islamic sword called Jibril, that means that the sword is the voice of Gabriel. <laughs> Notice the idiom Gabriel speaks. Anyway, at the age of 43 in the year 613, Muhammad began preaching a new religion in Mecca and, needless to say, met resistance. The inhabitants of the city of Mecca, members of the tribe of Quraysh, were pagans. They had a number of little goddesses to whom they had statues in this little boxy building in the middle of the town that was called the Kaaba. And um, eventually, Muhammad cleaned those statues out of there. But initially, it was a little pagan shrine. When he was 49 years old, his first wife, Khadija, died after they had been married 24 years. It was in 619. I think that speaks well, yeah, except that she was then followed by nine more. <laughs> In the year 622, resistance to Muhammad's preaching came to such a point that he and many followers fled. The word in Arabic for fleeing is hijra, hijra. They fled to the city known as Yithrab, but they gave it the name Town of the Prophet, Medinat al-Nabi, the city of the Prophet. We call it today Medina. He had been welcomed there by some people who already thought highly of him, and he very soon took over the town. So in 622, he's out from under the thumb of his original bosses and relatives, and he becomes the head of his own little, uh, what do you want to call it, a city-state. Well, <laughs> in the same year, he begins on the second aspect of his marriage career. He had been... Um, affianced, is that the word? Or she promised to him. There was promised to him a girl who was at the time six years old. Well, in 622, the child was nine years old and Muhammad consummated his marriage to her child of nine. Okay? Um, now, despite events like this, and perhaps because of them, Muhammad is held up in Islam as al-insan al-kalim, the ideal man, the perfect man. So this kind of behavior, taking a child bride, is optimal behavior. 
And we find a similar teaching in the mouth of the late and unlamented Khomeini, the architect of the Iranian Revolution. Now, from age 54 to age 59, Mohammed was a warrior chief, head of this little city-state, and he conducted raids and wars. The general name for this period of his life and this aspect of his career is called the Maghazi, M-A-G-H-A-Z-I, the Maghazi, the war period. And it's especially useful to us because I'm going to be bringing you a bunch of stories from that war period which I think will ring some bells in your memory from recent events in um, Syria and Iraq. After this period of civil wars, small wars, I should say, ending in about 629, Muhammad and his army conquered Mecca. They beat the final army of the Quraysh, took over the town, and therewith, Muhammad was master of southern Arabia. That's in the year 630. He's 60 years old that year. And in the next year, he gets submissions from other Arabian tribes. And you would think, okay, Muhammad, now you've got your birthplace, and all the old notables who used to be against you have turned to you, and so, time to, uh, what, uh, hang, up, hang up the sword? That was not Muhammad's attitude. Instead, as soon as he had the Arabian Peninsula subtly behind him, he launched a war against the Byzantine Empire, okay? which was the non-Islamic state closest to his borders at that point. He attacked the Byzantine Empire in the little town of Tabuk. It's a little backwoods town. And um, won a little bit of a victory. That was in 631. And then one year later, he died. He was 62 years old when he died. He died in the city of Medina on June the 8th. June the 8th is coming up. I think it would make a rather ironic day to remember. I mean, I didn't say that. I take it back. Muhammad dies at Medina, and after his death, um, there was a quick deliberation in the army. When you look at the early history of Islam, you're tempted to think of it as a religion, a religion that happens to have an army because we was able to take over Medina. Huh? But it's better to look at it as an army with a religion. It was an army with a mission to spread this religion. And the army officers, the brass of Muhammad's army, took deliberation who would succeed Muhammad. The answer would be called the caliph, the successor. 
And the first one chosen by the army was an elderly man who had already been a companion of Muhammad for many years named Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr was one of, well, he's the only of the early caliphs to die a natural death. After Abu Bakr died, the army got together again and chose Umar, mostly known among us as Omar. We spell with an O, the Arabs spell it with a U, Omar. Like, for example, the, the famous mosque of Omar, Dome of the Rock, so on and so on. Omar lasted a decade, from 634 to 644, and then he was assassinated by fans of Ali, A-L-I. Now, I don't, Ali was not involved in that particular plot, but Ali had fans, and the reason he had these fans is because there was a party in the early Islamic community that believed the succession must go not to the army's choice, but to a member of the prophet's family. And this would have been Ali, who was Muhammad's son-in-law. Okay? All right, so Omar is assassinated, and he is succeeded by Uthman, U-T-H-M-A-N, Uthman, who lasted a dozen years until he was also assassinated by fans of Ali. During Uthmar's time, Uthman's time, I should say, fragments of what later became the Quran were first collected and edited. This is about 20 years after Muhammad's death. Before that time, fragments of the recitations he had given under the alleged inspiration of Gabriel were recorded just hither and yon on pieces of palm bark, pieces of palm leaf, whatever, scattered around in various forms. Um, finally gathered in about the year 654. Okay. Finally, Uthman is assassinated. And Ali was finally chosen. Hello, army. Everybody's going to be happy now, right? Yep. Ali reigned for five years. That's all. 656 to 651 AD. And then he was assassinated by some of his former supporters. These were an extremist group that go, come down to history under a name I want you to remember. They were called the Karajites, K-H-A-R-I-J-I-T-E-S. They were believers in courage, K-H-A-R-I-J which roughly, very roughly translated, means secessionist. These were uh, very old-fashioned 
Arab tribalists who did not really believe in a central um, caliphate except at need. Their real loyalty was to their tribe, and they thought Ali had betrayed their hopes, and so they killed him. These were hyper-rigid, these assassins of Ali, and the result has been um, a plague that has affected Islamic history ever since. The fall, because once Ali had been caliph, his fans believed that the succession must go to his son. Whereupon you get the Ali fans becoming the party of Ali called the Shia. Shia is party of. Shia Ali, party of Ali. And um, although today they are mostly located in Iran, they were at one time or another all over the Middle East, little pockets of them all over the place. At one time, as a matter of fact, the uh, Shiites controlled a rival caliphate in Egypt, the caliphate of Cairo, a family called the Fatimids. But their attempts to undermine the main caliphate, the one that continued to follow the, the, um, the first five, uh, with another army choice and other dynastic arrangements and so on, uh, was never overthrown. They were never able to dislodge the main center of the caliphate, which was in Baghdad. Now, I have named for you the five caliphs who are called the rightly guided ones. That's it. End of the list. Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali. There it is. End of the rightly guided caliphs. After that came the Umayyads for a long, long time. After that came the famous ones that everybody's heard of, the Abbasid caliphs, who had their capital in Baghdad and included famous guys like Harun al-Rashid, and Al-Mahmoon and Al-Mutasim and so on, the fabulously wealthy and enormously powerful rulers over a vast empire. By about 900, however, their caliphate was greatly diminished because of uh, breakdown, invasions by Turkish groups, and finally, it was brought to the dust by the invasion of the Mongols. And from there on, the history of Islam is bound up with the Seljuk and Ottoman Turks. All right, that's enough about the overall history of these people. I want you to notice that already we can see it is a history bathed in violence, but we haven't begun the violence from the beginning yet. I want to go back to that period called the Magazi, the period of raids and early wars conducted by Muhammad himself.
beginning with his raid on the oasis of Nachla, N-A-K-H-L-A. At this point, um, Muhammad was uh, already for a year or so in charge of Medina, so he had his home territory, he had his steady forces, and he felt more confident in confronting his old enemies in his home tribe, the Qurayshis, who were still down in Mecca. So, with Allah's permission, the, the uh, Muslims began raiding the caravans that were bringing goods and money and so on to Mecca. Muhammad himself led many of these raids on the caravans. Uh, as he was hoping to meet one of these caravans for a plunder expedition, a Muslim asked him a question. He said, the prophet passed me by at a place called Awaba and asked whether it was permissible to attack the unbelievers, the mushrikun. Hey, now you know a word for yourselves. You are all mushrikun, okay, which comes from a word meaning idolaters. Shark is idolatry, and a mushrik is an idolater. But you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a person of the book. You can't call me an idolater. You are a person of the book just insofar as Muhammad thinks you have kept its correct interpretation, which ain't very far. Because you believe in the Holy Trinity, he accuses you of associating creatures with God and therefore considers you an idolater. This is why, despite stuff in early Islamic statements about the people of the book and their privileges and so on, the fact is that uh, Christians do not get too many breaks, not anymore, especially among the Islamic extremists. Is it permissible to attack the unbelieving warriors at night? Ah, Here's a moral theology question for you. Hey, Muhammad, is it okay to attack these unbelievers at night with the probability of exposing their women and children to danger? Huh? If you meet them on the battlefield, you only battle the guys, but if you attack them at night, there they are in their camp with the women in the camp and the kids. So, I mean, can, you, can, can we do that, O oh, Prophet? To which Muhammad's answer was, well, the women and children are theirs. They belong to them. In other words, they're unbelievers also. Mushrikun. So from then on, innocent, non-Muslim women and children could legitimately suffer the same fate as male unbelievers. The battle of uh, the raid at Nakhla. Eventually, the, uh, the raid was conducted. 
And um, in the course of that raid, the concept of um, jihad was introduced. Um, if anyone, the apostle commanded this one guy to go to the oasis of Nakhla and there watch out for the Qureshi caravan. They were going to come and they'd have some armed guards with them. So watch out and see what they're doing. And the guy thought, well, that could be pretty dangerous. And he told the others that the apostle has commanded me to go to Nakhla and lie there in wait for the Quraysh to bring us news of them. He's forbidden me to put any pressure on you folks. So if anyone wishes for a martyrdom, let him go forward. And if you don't, go back. I'm go- doing as the prophet has ordered. I'm going. Here, this apostle, this disciple, I should say, uses the word martyr the way Muhammad came to use it. Anyone who is slays and is slain for Allah, for Islam. If you slay and are or and or are slain, well, if you're slain, if you slay and are slain for Islam, you count as a martyr. Okay. This, by the way, this definition is sanctified in the Quran in Surah 9, verse 111. So, unlike for us, where martyrdom is a form of suffering, where you undergo injustice for the name of Christ, here you are able to do violence. And if you're killed during doing the violence, you're blessed forever. Now, I just, um, um, teaching talented undergraduates is something I've been doing for a very long time. And here's one of the rewards of it. This week, uh, when I was teaching my apologetics class, I was having the students do uh, oral presentations. And one of the guys said, I'm going to speak about the circumcellian heresy. And I said, the what? Circumcellian heresy. And uh, I had never heard of it. Now, there are not many heresies I haven't heard of. (laughs) But this was a new one on me. And it goes back to the 4th century, late 4th, early 5th century, at the time when there was uh, a lot of civil unrest in the Roman provinces of Africa um, with names like Numidia and uh, what were some of the other ones there? Uh, anyway, St. Augustine uh, eventually became a bishop in that area and tried to put an end to this unrest. At first thought it could be done without calling upon the temporal sword, but eventually Augustine himself gave up and advised the emperor to come in with troops and put these people down. And I had thought, well, the main problem with the Donatists is they had withdrawn into uh, fortified cities. So they were basically rejecting 
the Roman civil order. It wasn't that simple. The Donatists had discovered this weird little sect that belonged to their own tradition and went further and were call, and called themselves the Circumcellians and who held a novel theory of holiness. Yes. You think perhaps holiness is mainly a matter of learning self-control, learning the command of your appetites, learning to devote your time and energy to God and his purposes. Yeah, yeah, it's all very nice. But the circumcellion said, that's slow. That's the slow boat to holiness. The express trip is by martyrdom. Get yourself killed for the faith and you go straight up to paradisial bliss. So, in other words, um, piety is dandy, but martyrdom is quicker. <laughs> but that's not the end of the circumcellian perversion of the Christian idea. They were so eager to be martyred that they weren't about to wait for somebody to come and attack them. No. They would go out and attack people, assuming that these people would sooner or later fight back. And then they'd be killed. And then he'd be martyred. Let's call this provoked martyrdom. Right? And, uh, and by the way, it took over 100 years to put this down. They were uh, fanatics and survived in little pockets here and there, especially in Numidia. And um, fortunately, it was, it was never a widespread phenomenon, very small. But it's not as though this Muslim mistake about what makes a martyr had never been thought of before. It was thought of by a bunch of Berber bandits, so to speak, who called themselves Christians and... Um, thereby disgraced our name to their little extent. Yes? Anyway, the Islamic theory of martyrdom goes back to the raid on Nakla. If you uh, get killed in conducting this raid, and it's going to be dangerous, if you get killed, you're a martyr, you're saved. You go straight to paradise. Now, that was in the year 624. So Muhammad is still alive and begins this sort of tradition. Um, there's another tradition I better tell you about that also goes back to the year 624, early 625. I don't know how to put this except to say Muhammad had a hitman. Yes. Uh, what's the name of the hitman in The Godfather? Yeah. 
Yeah, he's a soldier. Um, yeah, well, whatever it was. He ate with the, he slept with the fishes eventually. <laughs> Luca Brasi, that's it. Muhammad's Luca Brasi was a guy named Bin Maslama. M-A-S-L-A-M-A, Bin Maslama. There was a poet who bothered Muhammad. He was a Jewish poet, and he made up verses that Muhammad just did not like one little bit. Some of the verses sort of made fun of uh, Muslim girls for being a little on the hot side, shall we say. And so... um, uh, Muhammad um, said, Poe's uh, name was Kab, by the way, K A apostrophe B. Kab. Don't worry, nobody can say it. Kab. <laughs> Al Ashraf. Muhammad was bothered by this and he said, Who is willing to kill Kab bin Ashraf? who has hurt Allah and his apostle, who's willing to do him in. Whereupon, a young volunteer stepped forward, named Muhammad bin Maslama. Messenger of Allah, he said, you wish that I should kill him? The prophet of Islam answered in the affirmative. And Muhammad bin Maslama made a request. Then allow me, O prophet, to say a false thing. In other words, to deceive the guy as part of my plan to knock him off. Okay? And Muhammad took the path of expediency and said, you may say it. Okay? Well, The man then went and met this poet, told him a yarn about how he wanted to bring some friends to see him. And uh, later that night, they came together, and his friends were with him. And um, they said to him, oh, what's that perfume you're wearing, oh, poet? That is some cologne you've got on there. Oh, oh, the poet said, you like, you like. My verses are beautiful, too. You like, you like this. Bend down your heads, we may smell you. (laughs) So while his head was bent over, they bashed it for him. Okay? In other words, assassination accompanied by deception. And thereby begins a tradition that whatever is done to the benefit of Islam is well done. Remember, there is no tradition of natural law in Islam. There's no tradition of pre-Islamic morality as way, you know, we inherited uh, Greek philosophical morality, we inherited the morality of the Old Testament. Christianity came into the world and inherited a ready-made morality, which Jesus then improved and purified and so on. 
But there's nothing like that in southern Arabia. Uh, a natural law tradition never got down there. And so it was up to the prophet to say what would be permitted, permitted and what isn't. And a law could decree whatever the heck he pleased. It's not as though there was any pre-existing culturally accepted authority to stand in the way of, a, of our laws dictating anything expedient. Alas. All right. I now want to go to the story of the exile of a... Um, no, I don't want to go there yet. After the murder of this poet, who was, by the way, after they bashed him, they cut off his head and brought it to the prophet. Yes. Token. And um, after the murder of this poet, Muhammad issued a blanket command. It was, it was a temporary command, but it was a standing order for the time being. The command was, kill any Jew that falls into your power. Oops. Now, um, I should think that an authorized, religiously authorized biography of Muhammad would at least have skipped that, even, even if it you know, maybe Muhammad was in a snit and said this one day, but you would think an authorized biography would skip that. But no, we know this from Muhammad's first and most authorized biographer, a man named Son of Isaac, Ibn Ishaq. Ishaq, I-S-H-A-Q, Ibn Ishaq. And uh, he wrote um, around the, uh, he was born in 704, and wrote this biography uh, around the year 725, 726. And um, it's been handed down in fragments, at least, ever since. A big official version was copied out. And it is the cherished biography to this day. So there you are. They, they thought it was a fine, fine judgment. It was not a military order, however because the first victim of it was a merchant. A Jewish merchant fell into their hands and they killed him. Right. On another occasion, Muhammad allowed one of his followers to use deception again in order to kill another of his enemies. Sufan ibn Khalid al-Hadali, whom the prophet of Islam likened to the devil himself. When you see him, he told his would-be hitman. He told the hitman, when you see him, you'll be frightened and bewildered, and you'll think he's Satan. And the mission was accomplished. And this ugly guy, Sufyan, was dead. Muhammad praised the killer and gave him a staff, a walking stick, saying here, walk with this to paradise. Right. All right, now I'm going to the first uh, of Muhammad's pogroms 
if I may use that uh, nasty and anachronistic and loaded word. This has to do with the deporting the Jewish population from Medina. There was a part of the Jewish population named the Banu Nadir, the children of Nadir. And um, um, they had hatched a plot against Muhammad. There was a plan to drop a big rock on his head when he walked by one of their houses. Well, the rock missed. And um, Muhammad didn't say, okay, hand over whoever was guilty for this. No, no, no. He's in charge of Medina now, remember. He could have said, hey, you attempted to assassinate your legitimate governor. I just hand this guy over. No, 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 no. He says, leave my country and do not live with me for you intend treachery. This is a nice way to deal with your political enemies, huh? Leave my country. And uh, the men of Nadir protested. And they said, you made a deal with us when you first came here. And the answer to that was, hearts have changed. Times have changed. Now, there was a guy named Abdullah bin Ubay. U-B-A-Y-Y, Ubay who belonged to a group of followers, sort of, that, Islam, that Muhammad called the hypocrites. Because they were basically time servers. They didn't believe in fighting for much of anything. And um, when Muhammad said, I'm getting rid of these people, I'm driving them out, this time server named Ubay said, oh, no, prophet, uh, show some mercy. You're, you're going to take away my clients. Whereupon, Muhammad uh, had mercy for a while, then thought the better of it, and launched a military campaign against the area in which this Nadir tribe was living. Are we, are we still in business here? Can you hear me? Mike. Yeah. Um, area where they were living. And um, they got the message. They didn't get killed. They got out. Some of them burned their own houses. And, you know, moved out, you know, pack, back and bag and baggage. Um, so that was just, you know, an expulsion. But now, I come down two years to the year 627 and tell the story of how Muhammad dealt with the guys in the Jewish tribe of Quraiza. Quraiza. Now watch. His Arab tribe, his own people, are called the Quraysh. Do not confuse them with the Quraiza. The Kuraiza are a Jewish tribe. Okay? And um, they made a big mistake. 
they were allied with Muhammad and uh, in the midst of a battle, the Battle of the Trench, uh, they didn't help him. So they went back on their alliance. And um, Muhammad decreed that for this there had to be a punishment. The sons of Qurayza broke their covenant with the Prophet of Islam. Okay, so what did he do with them? Well, he had all the men brought into the city square. And he said to them, Ye brothers of monkeys, has God disgraced you and brought his vengeance upon you? Oh, yes. The Quran in three places says that Allah transformed Sabbath-breaking Jews into pigs and monkeys. That's where that business comes from, that you see on the news sometimes. Arab kids calling Jews children of pigs and monkeys. It, it, it goes back to Muhammad. Well, okay. Um, I give judgment that their warriors should be killed and their children and women should be taken captive. Right. The sentence was duly carried out with Muhammad himself actively participating. According to Ibn Ishaq, the apostle went out to the market of Medina, which is still there today, and dug trenches in it. Then he sent for the men of this Jewish tribe and struck off their heads in those trenches as they were brought to him in batches. One of the prophet's fiercest enemies among them proclaimed, God's command is right. A book and a decree, the massacre, have been written against the sons of Israel. Muhammad then cut off his head. All right? So when you see Arab warriors beheading people en masse, or at least in tens and twenties and hundreds, they're answering for you the question, what would Muhammad do? All right? And I'm out of time, am I not? Oh, sponsor. I'm out of time. And so, and so, I'll tell you what to do if you want to know what Muhammad would do. Watch television. <laughs> In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Um, Dr. Marshner, if the, um, these latter-day, um, I forget, the hyper-rigid, whatever they are, starts with a K, if they became Shia or Shiites and went to Baghdad, where did these Sunnis come from? Oh, the Karajites died out. Uh, they did not become the Shiites. The fans of Ali became the Shiites. The Sunnis um, are the people who backed Abu Bakr in the first place and the other caliphs. And after Ali was killed, they went back to the idea that somebody in the community or some local dynasty could take over and become caliph. And so they were the majority of Islam during all of those years of the Abbasid 
uh, the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates until um, the uh, Shia uh, pretty much uh, shrunk into um, Iran. Um, what finally did them in was the Mongol invasion. They had uh, <laughs> they had immured themselves for a number of years in a inaccessible mountain castle in northern Persia called Alamut. And that was the center of their activity from which the grand master of these people would send out assassins. Okay. In fact, the word assassin comes from the Arabic name for these people. They were called hashishis because people thought they were so crazy, people thought they got to be smoking hashish. Um, did uh, Muhammad have any faith tradition before he started getting those revelations? No, 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 no. He, um, well, he, he had relatives who came from our faith tradition or close to it. He had an uncle who allegedly was a Nestorian clergy person, priest. Um, but uh, we don't know if that story is really true. Allows treachery. Is there any reason we should believe in any treaty with the Iranian government? Well, I don't want to take over Secretary Kerry's job. Somebody needs to. But I, I, I wouldn't trust them. Let's just put it that way. Professor, what is your opinion of interfaith dialogue between uh, the Catholic Church and uh, Muslim groups and organizations? Okay. Um, it's mostly a waste of time. Um, there could be occasional things that we could profit by discussing, like how to get the bodies of our nuns and clergymen out of Algeria or wherever they recently slit their throats. But, um, and, and of course, but I, I don't want you to think that all Muslims take this view of what Muhammad would do. Uh, you need to distinguish between those who just sort of close their eyes to the dark part of his record and those who highlighted, okay? The recent spate of Islamic extremists are those who highlight the dark part of the record. Uh, most Muslims are not that way. Um, they will agree in principle, yes, yes, Muhammad was wonderful and great and model man and all that kind of stuff. But then, uh, if you start talking about particular cases, then what they want to do, some of them, and this is something that's now being worked on in Egypt at the highest levels. What they want to do, some of them, is say, look, this was the 7th century AD. These were barbarous times. These customs of war are long since abandoned by civilized countries. We don't, 
enslave the women anymore or the children or behead the men. We, we don't do that anymore. And so we're going to update the teaching and, you know, just, just like, look, do you, do you ever know a Jew who believes that every rabbi is obliged to imitate Joshua's example in uh, the book of Joshua? Huh? We're going to walk around cities and blow horns? And, no. But um, the, the Muslims have no sense, the extremist Muslims in any case, have no sense of historical distance. Professor, could you please uh, speak about the concept of abrogation? Obligation. Ab abrogation. Oh, abrogation. Okay, there are a handful of verses uh, in the Quran which are considered abrogated by subsequent revelation, right? None of them has to do with the pursuit of uh, unbelievers in warfare. The concept of abrogation could be used by a reformist element in Islam if one could get enough purchase to do some good. They could use that already existing concept to say, well, more of these old-fashioned war verses and so on are now to be considered abrogated. But it's, it's hard to allege that there's been an abrogation without an explicit word from Allah saying, I hereby abrogate Surah 900 and something. Um, thank you. Um, my question might be more towards next week. It has a theological basis. If we have a biblical worldview and God is sovereign, ultimately, what might be his purposes in allowing Islam to rise? Because I often think of the prophet Habakkuk, who stood there weeping, saying, you know, my country does all these things. Where are you, God? And are you going to do anything? And God says, yes, I'm sending the Assyrians to teach my children a lesson. What do you see, perhaps, in the bigger picture, the purposes of Islam might be on the earth? All right. Um, it's stupid for me to answer that. Um, but imprudence is my middle name. <laughs> And so I will say that the ultimate purpose of Islam is to show the bankruptcy of false revelations. Okay? It is the foremost rival to Christianity as a revealed universalist religion. And it is a horrible simulacrum, indeed. And hopefully we'll discourage other people from trying the same thing. Fake revelations are not necessarily helpful. A frequent uh, greeting in the Mideast is that um, Muhammad is, um, uh, there's only one God and Muhammad is his uh, prophet. Uh, is this like a direct contradiction to the Trinity and why is this so upfront when you meet someone or in a greeting? Well, that uh, quote in and of itself uh, contradicts our doctrine only in claiming that Muhammad is his prophet. We also believe in one God. La ilaha illallah is something we could say. Um, but the Trinity is all within the one God, yes? Um, we don't say there are three gods. So we can say there is no God but God. 
which is all it means. It's really a tautology. We can say that. But the confession that then Muhammad is his prophet brings up Muhammad's claim that the doctrines of the divinity of Christ and the Trinity are false doctrines. And it's thanks to those doctrines that Muhammad, Muhammadans characterize us as those who are misled. Okay. Unlike the Jews who are rebels, we are misled. Doesn't necessarily let us live any longer, but... Uh, Thank you very much, Dr. Marshall. All right. We will, we will get back together next week, same time, same place, uh, for the second... We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.